Heavenly Father, the greatest need of every human being in this room, myself especially, is to see you with the eyes of our hearts as we look at the reality of your glory, your beauty, your purposes in the scriptures. And I pray, Father, that you would move out of the way anything in me that would cause my friends to to not see you and that your word would stand forth as glorious as it is so that we can be transformed into your image from one degree of glory to another. Father God, we need to see you. Please come. In the name of Jesus, amen. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them. Yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Those are the first 10 verses verses of the 40th Psalm. And they speak about an unbreakable link between the salvation of God and the mission of God. The salvation of God and the mission of God inside the soul of man. So let me repeat that just for clarity. This psalm, especially these 10 verses, show us an unbreakable link between the salvation of God and the mission of God in the souls of his redeemed people. And today, even though we started in Psalm 40, is our last final look at the book of Jonah, the realities that are presented in the book of Jonah. Uh, Last week, we finished the story of Jonah. We got all the way to the end of the narrative. (laughs) And um, though we did, we're not quite done. There's one more thing I think we need to look at among all the things that we've seen over the last few weeks And that's this. The book of Jonah begins with a command, verse 2. Command from God. If you remember, God tells Jonah to arise and go to Nineveh. He says, arise and go. But Jonah doesn't. Of course, you know this. He runs from God, and God chases him down with a storm and sends him to the bottom of the Mediterranean where only God can save Jonah And 
astonishingly, God does save Jonah, despite Jonah. And when Jonah is swallowed and spit out by this great fish, chapter 3 begins with a similar command. Arise and go to Nineveh. And this time, though he is reluctant, as we find out in chapter 4, Jonah does uh, go. And he is preaching the, God, preaching the word, the words of God, to the people of Nineveh. They repent. And then chapter 4, we see that he is actually still captive to sin. He's still captive to an idolatry that he has in his heart. And he's even pleading with God to die. And this whiplash event in chapter 4 comes at, at a surprising point in the book. We think everything is going well for him. Um, but it asks a question, we looked at this last week, do we have the heart of God for the people of the world? Do we share his compassion? Do we share his love? And I think we're tempted after we read the book of Jonah, it's very short, you can read it in a matter of, uh, of minutes. We're tempted after this conversation that Jonah has with God to, um, to wonder what happens to him. What happens to this man? I mean, the book doesn't tell us. The rest of scripture doesn't tell us what happens to Jonah. And we're left in this chamber, like an echo chamber, with this command ringing in our ears, arise and go, arise and go. And for those of you who were with us in the series prior to our exploration of the book of Jonah, this command to go isn't new to you. It's something you've heard before. After telling the story of the Good Samaritan, this man who meets a, a wounded, broken, half-dead individual on the side of the road and at great cost to himself rescues him, brings him back to health, Jesus says this line to the lawyer in Luke 10.36. He says, Who do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And the lawyer says to him, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says to him, you go and do likewise. Jesus says, go and do likewise. And this, this actually originates in an earlier conversation, not about helping people on the side of the road, but about eternal life. If, if you recall in, in verse 25 of this chapter in Luke, the man asks, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And the way that Jesus describes true, authentic faith to this man, a faith that grants someone eternal life, is complete and total devotion to God and to his purposes. The person of God and the purposes of God are not separate realities in the mind of Christ. And Luke 10, 27 shows us this link. The man says to him, and Jesus affirms that this is true, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So in pressing these two realities together, Jesus is saying to re refuse to love your neighbor, and, and that's anybody in the world who needs your help, anybody in the world who needs your help, according to this parable, is to reject God's purposes, and therefore to reject his person. Jesus is saying here we can't compartmentalize 
our love for God and our love for people like they're in separate rooms because the very love of God is what drives us to love other people. And the book of Jonah shows us a shocking example of what must never, ever, ever happen in our hearts. Scholars even think that there may be a deep connection between the, the parable of the Good Samaritan and the story of Jonah, that Jesus is telling this parable explicitly to contrast the story of Jonah. Now, the irony is that when we came up with the series this summer, had no clue that there was even any connection at all, and they just sort of fell together um, by God's providence over the last uh, few weeks as I've been looking at this. Jesus tells this story of an Israelite who brings mercy, or he tells the story of, of a a foreigner who brings mercy to an Israelite. And the story of Jonah is the story of an Israelite who refuses to bring mercy to a foreign nation. There's a deep connection between these two because they're almost exact polar opposites of the same wild scenario. Um, And like I said, this connection was not in my mind when we first started this. So it, it asked the question, for me at least, this week, What are we supposed to see here? What are we supposed to see between these two parables, the contrast that's brought here? And when we began the series of Jonah, I told you like the the book of Jonah is a powerful, poetic book. There are things that the, the author does that are amazing with language. It's divided into two separate parts. In chapter one, God issues a command, arise and go. In chapter 3, he issues the same command, and we see parallels throughout the story of Jonah's salvation in the Mediterranean and the people of Nineveh's, the need for their salvation and the consummation of their salvation in the, the, the preaching of Jonah. And <clears throat> this, these two words, arise and go, are not a, a coincidence this word uh, arise uh, only appears in the book of Jonah in one other section. And that is, um, the word itself is, is in Hebrew, kum. And it was the event, I don't know if you remember this, when Jonah was fast asleep below the, the deck of the ship while the ship was being pummeled by the storm that God had, had sent to turn him around and get him back to Nineveh. And we said that, to be asleep in the middle of a storm is a lot like the human condition, natural human condition, completely asleep to the, to the tragic reality of separation from the living God. And Jonah, just like every other human being on the planet, needs desperately to be woken up from this slumber. He needs to know God. He needs to trust God. And if you remember, the pagan captain comes below the deck shocked that Jonah is asleep during the middle of this. And in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, Arise, kum, call out to your God. And so this word, arise, has a pivotal, pivotal dimension in the book of Jonah. It is this seminal scene in which Jonah begins to slowly awaken from his rebellious slumber to the purposes of God. Though we know, of course, if you've read the whole book, that he will struggle with that reality till the very end. So a rise in the book of Jonah isn't a, simply a practical activity. Like Jonah needs to actually stand up before he can take, take steps to go to Nineveh. It's not just that. There is a deep connection between arising 
and going to bring salvation to people as the mission of God. These two words, arise and go, are not arbitrary. There is a connection between them and the book of Jonah and between our own lives, our own rising from the slumber of ignorance to God or unbelief, from the, from the death, uh, spiritual death that we experience outside of being in Christ, and there's a connection to that and bringing hope, the same hope that woke us up to other people who are asleep. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Psalm 40, uh, which we read earlier, makes this same connection. It shows us this link, this unbreakable link, like I said before, between the salvation of God, what God accomplishes in us, and the mission of God. And it shows this link being forged in the soul of man. Arise and go are not two separate activities. They are not two separate events. And so what I'd like to do today is explore this deep link between arising and going, between salvation in us and the mission of God to bring salvation to others. And the way I'd like to do this in Psalm 40 is a little bit different than we've done in the past. Um, what I'd like to do is, is actually go backward in the text. To start at the last part that I read at the beginning... Um, and then to move backward to the beginning. I want to start out with the expression of the mission of God, proclaiming God's salvation, and then move all the way back to ground zero, to the point of impact in, in David's soul, David who wrote this psalm, as he experiences salvation firsthand. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please grab them. Turn with me to Psalm 40. We're going to begin, like I said, with verse 9 and 10, and then we're going to move in reverse. And you're going to see here in this section we're about to read the mission of God. We're going to start with go and work our way back to arise to see this link between the two. Listen to David's words here in verse 9 and 10. He says, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord, I have, not hid, or I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. And so this is what mission looks like. This is not a surprise to us. We, we recognize that. That's what's going on here. This is what it looks like to go and to bring God's salvation. David says here, that God's salvation is the glad news of deliverance, the glad news of deliverance, which he told to the great congregation. Look at the way he expresses it here. He expresses it in two different ways. He expresses it positively, and he expresses it negatively. First, he says in verse 9, this is the positive statement, I have told the glad news of deliverance. And then in verse 10, he says again, I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. He wants to make it clear, he has spoken. He has actively told people of what God has done in his life. How could he not? That's his statement. That's the implication of his statement, which is exactly what he means when he says the same thing, but he says it negatively. Listen to how he says it here. He says, I have not restrained my lips. I have not. So it is a negative statement. He's not restraining his lips. I have not hidden your deliverance. And again, he says, I have not concealed your steadfast love 
and your faithfulness. He's told the congregation about the one who loves him and who has saved him. And these negative statements in here are critically important for us to see and understand and comprehend. Um, And the reason why is they tell us that to not tell someone of the salvation that we have experienced is to conceal the work of God. If God has really rescued us and redeemed us and delivered us from the punishment of sin and death, then to not communicate that reality is to restrain our lips, to hide it in our hearts. Now, think with me carefully about this. If this text is true, if this is supposed to be our disposition about the salvation that we've experienced, then to not proclaim it isn't just like negligence or a failure to communicate something, a fact about us. It is to actually actively conceal it. Because the, the kind of salvation David is talking about here isn't simply a salvation that's you know, nice to tell people if you feel like it or if you get a chance or maybe if the opportunity comes up in the conversation or um, if God opens a door. I've said that before many times. But the kind of salvation that's being discussed here is if you don't speak about it, you're actually hiding something, the most important thing about you in your heart. It is to actively restrain our lips. That's the kind of salvation that David is thinking about here and looking at here. A salvation that is so great, so awesome, so glorious that it must be spoken of. It has to be spoken of. And so this is a big deal. And David continues by comparing the need to proclaim God's deliverance over and against a rote superficial exercise of religious activity. So look at verse 6 and 8 as we go backward. We continue to go backward to when he was first saved by God. It says this, In sacrifice and offering, you, that is God, have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. So what David is saying here is that sacrifice and offering were, at this point in time, these are are necessary things in the people of Israel. They weren't optional realities, but that they are not the most important things to God. They're not. To sacrifice to God and to offer God physical sacrifices is not the most important thing. That's what this passage is saying. What's most important to God is an open ear to God, his word, his will, and a heart that delights, that delights to embrace the will of God and to do it. That's the most important thing. To have religious activity, even good activity, even healthy, right activity, which this is, in our lives is meaningless. It has no meaning if our ears and hearts are closed to the clear commands of God in Scripture, if we don't delight in His law and His word and His will. 
And the thing that is profound about this, when you think about it, is that David says here that it is God himself who has given him an open ear. That's what it says here, that his delight in treasuring of God's law and will isn't something he pulled together on his own. It says, you have given me an open ear. This was an act of God in David's soul. The reason he has an open ear, according to this passage, is because God gave it to him which is another way of David connecting the salvation of God in his life with the mission of God, that his delighting of God's word is a, isn't just a result of an event, it is the very, the very communication of what God's done to him. So they're not separate realities, they're one and the same. The open ear is precisely why David has delight to to embrace the law and the will of God in his life, in his heart. It's not a, a cause and effect. It is the same event. And we're going to see this with more clarity when we get to the first verses of this chapter. But I want to look first at verse 4 and verse 5, which is going to press deeper into this link between the salvation of God and the mission of God. So verse 4 and 5 say, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them. Yet they are more than can be told. So again, David is pressing together his salvation with the mission to proclaim the same salvation to other people. And his language here is reflecting a, a single event. He says, the man that the Lord, the man who has put his trust in the Lord is blessed. In other words, to make God your hope and your confidence and to turn away from the lie of, of self-provision, that you can do it on your own, or of provision in anything else in, in the world, any other person, any other thing, um, to turn away from that is to embrace salvation from God. God alone, David is stating here, must be our confidence in the source of our faith. And it's that disposition of the human heart that is rooted in, according to this passage, God's love for us. That's what he means when he shifts from his faith, trusting in God, to um, to the profound truth that God has worked for him, has thought of him, loves him, cares for him, and has brought him out of his peril. And he addresses God here as Lord, and you know what this means. Lord is the personal name, when it's in all caps in the Old Testament, of God, Yahweh, it is the personal name. And he says, my God, my Lord, Yahweh, my God. This is his only basis for salvation. He trusts his God. It is complete and total reliance on God alone. And this comes from the knowledge of his wondrous deeds and thoughts toward us, toward his people, toward David. And for David, this is staggering. This is staggering. He responds to the contemplation of God's thoughts and work, his deeds for us, with this statement, none can compare with you. None. There's no one like you. Now think about this. David's praise towards God isn't just a result of salvation. It's not that. 
It is the salvation itself. To praise and to trust God isn't a normal human activity. People aren't normally drawn to put their provision in somebody they can't see. It is an extraordinary anomaly that God has rescued David is the very basis on which his trust and his faith and confidence is rooted in. Yet David says here, no, I'm not going to hide this. I'm going to tell um, the world about this. None can compare with my God. He is unequaled. He is unparalleled. Therefore, I will proclaim all that he has done, he says here. And in fact, it's clear that this is not simply a response to salvation because David's proclamation is what makes his salvation visible to us. C.S. Lewis knew this um, in his book, The Reflections on the Psalms, and he knew that the nature of praise wasn't simply just a response to something good that had happened to us. It's not merely expressing joy in someone or something to praise them, like David is doing with God, but it is a completion of that joy. That joy is incomplete until it is expressed. And we know this to be true. You want to share the good things that have happened to you naturally in your heart. And so this is a consummation of his joy in God by communicating it to other people. The very words, none can compare with you, that they're written in our Bible, that we can read them is evidence of this truth, he cannot remain silent about his God. To be silent about this reality, who God is and what God has done is to be ignorant of his greatness because his greatness causes us, drives us to do this, which is why the next line is so stunning. I will proclaim and tell of them your deeds, your works, yet they are more than can be told. And I think we need to stop here just for a moment and really think about what is going on in David's heart and mind as he writes this down. I think we might assume, he, he, maybe he's talking about the numbers. Like, I can't rattle off all the different things that you've done for me. And in a very real way, that is true. But it goes beyond numbers. It goes profoundly beyond numbers to the very nature, glory, and power of God as he works in David's life to redeem and save him. David is saying here, God's work of salvation in us is so beyond our ability to fully comprehend it, no less say it to people, speak about it with people. In Ephesians, Paul talks about the, in chapter two, the unsearchable riches of God's grace and kindness toward us who believe unsearchable. You do not use that word for everything. He, he says again in chapter 1 that our salvation comes from the immeasurable power of God himself. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that is working in us. So not only is David capturing all that God has given us, every breath that we have, the molecules in our bodies, everything that we are, everything in this world that we enjoy comes from him, and every spiritual or physical means for us to know him and experience joy in him also comes from him. But innumerable as they are, and impossible for us to count because of our own finitude, and yet 
More than that is the exceeding grace and mercy and love and compassion for, or grace and mercy and love and compassion that God has toward us in his power that works for us. If your faith is in Christ, this is important. If your faith is in Christ, if you're experiencing right now a love and affection for Jesus, the immeasurably great power of the living God is in your heart right now to make that a reality. That did not happen to you naturally. It is God's powerful work to keep you trusting in him. And so with that, I want to turn to the point of impact. I want to turn to ground zero, the first three verses of this psalm, where we see salvation happen to David. David says this, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. And then he says, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. This is ground zero of David's deliverance. This is the point at which his salvation actually takes place. And this is how he describes it. Now, clearly, he's not talking about an event where he came to saving faith in Jesus Christ because a missionary came to him. Obviously, that's not the picture being painted here. He is describing God's powerful act in delivering him, in saving him. And that act is the same saving work that God does for everyone who belongs to him. All of God's salvation for his people happens this way, happens in this same pattern. We cry out to God and we trust that he's going to provide. We cry out to him for his provision and we believe and wait that it's going to actually happen. And so David begins with this line, I waited patiently for the Lord. And he's waiting because he's cried out to the Lord. We know that because as the verse continues, it says, he inclined to me, he heard my cry. David has called upon the name of his God. And this is exactly what the captain told Jonah to do when he woke him up. Call out to your God. Why? So that we might be saved. And this is seen throughout scripture. The same pattern of calling out, trusting, and receiving salvation. Joel 2.32, Acts 2.21, Romans 10.13. You know this because you've experienced it firsthand. This is how people come to know the grace that's found in Christ Jesus. They call out to the Lord and he inclines to them. And so let's listen to this language. It says that God drew up David from the pit of destruction. Sounds similar to the language that is used in the book of Jonah. And from the miry bog and made him secure by setting his feet on a rock, on solid ground. And so part of the salvation from God was the removing of David from a very certain peril, from certain destruction. He was going to die here, and God saved him. And this same thing happens to everyone who has put their faith in Christ Jesus. Everyone who's received Christ Jesus has this same event happen at an infinitely more profound spiritual level. But that's not all that this salvation is. And this is, this is the most critical thing for us to see from this passage. Verse 3 says, He, God, put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Now that is huge. 
because it tells us that salvation is not simply a change in circumstance. It is a change in our affections. It's not simply a, a, a shifting of our position in relationship to destruction. It is a change of something deep inside of us. It's a new song that's put in our mouths, in our hearts, by the hand of the living God. That's what salvation is. It's not simply being saved from death and hell, though that's real. That really happens. But it is more than that. It is being saved to enjoy and worship God, to sing a new song. So it's more than a circumstance. I think we oftentimes think of salvation as a circumstance that changed, and it is that, but it's more than that. It is beyond that. It is that we are given a new song. So eternal life isn't primarily going to a place of painless existence where we can be with people we may, we may have lost along the way, though that will happen. It's not primarily that. Eternal life, according to John 17, is to know the one true God, to know him in, in a relational way, to know him affectionately, to love him. That's what eternal life is. And it doesn't begin when we die or when Jesus returns. It begins now. Upon receiving Christ in faith, we receive eternal life in that moment. We are given, in that moment, a new song. A new song. And that joy, like C.S. Lewis described, in order for it to be consummated, in order for it to be brought to completion, must be communicated. It is a song of praise. Therefore, it must be sung. It must be sung. So the song here isn't just the effect of salvation. The, the communication of God's goodness isn't just the effect of salvation. It is the very salvation. Does that make sense? God, your joy in God is the biggest part of God saving you. It is the greatest part. It's not an after effect. Because this joy, when it is expressed in proclamation, leads to what verse 3 tells us here, and that's this. Many will see and fear and will join us and put their trust in the Lord. Now, what does he mean here? What does David mean by verse 3? What are they seeing and fearing that causes them to put their trust in the God who delivered David. They are seeing the salvation of a man who relied completely on God and his saving strength, and that deliverance is expressed in a new song of adoration for God, a song of worship, a song of praise. And here's the deal. No one is going to see this or hear any song unless it's sung. No one. It must be sung. No one in our lives, I'm just going to bring it into our own space, is going to trust God if they never hear why he's trustworthy. The question is never, can God save? The answer is always yes. He's mighty to save. The question is, do we sing this song? Is this the song that 
defines our lives. Do we sing a new song? Not the song we sang with the world before we came and encountered Christ, but the new one, a song of praise. Because in finding God in Christ Jesus, we have found the one for whom our souls were meant. We found the one in whose arms we will never lack a thing. That's what we're talking about here. And so do we know this song? Do we sing it? Do we sing our salvation? And I'm not talking about religious conversion. I want to be clear here. I'm not talking about changing a religious hat because you felt like you were this religion one day and now you want to be this religion. I'm not talking about shifting worldviews intellectually because anybody can do that. Anybody can do that. That's not Christianity, not alone at least. Christianity is a song of praise that has been put into our mouth by God. It's new affections for God. I love him. I desire him. I want to tell of him. That's the song. And so the question really that Psalm 40 asks, and that I believe the entirety of the book of Jonah is pleading with us to see, is do we have this song welling up inside of us? When we were told to arise by the power of Christ, did we also go to communicate God's goodness in his saving of us? If you feel any of that welling up inside of you, a desire to do it, not an obligation to meet a religious standard, but a desire to tell people of God's goodness, even if you feel it faintly, what you are feeling in your heart is the salvation of God purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we know this to be true. Because when we get to Hebrews 10 in our Bibles, the author of Hebrews looks at the Greek translation of Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, and tells us that's actually looking at Jesus. That section of Psalm 40 is all about Jesus. And it says this in Hebrews 10, verse 5 through 7. When Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, then Jesus said, behold, Father, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. This is Jesus he's talking about, not David ultimately. Not David ultimately. Jesus, in fact, was the one who is written of in the scroll of the book. He's the one who brought this new song into existence. Without him, there would be no song. And instead of saying an open ear, God's given me an open ear to his will, to what he desires, the author of Hebrews pushes beyond this in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says it's more than an open ear. The open ear is just the surface of it. It was a body that was prepared for Christ. That's what it was, a body. And that body had a goal. The sacrificial system that David was talking about mainly had one purpose. It had many purposes, but its main purpose was to point to one single sacrifice in human history, the cross of Jesus Christ. And so what we're looking at when we look at this passage here is we are looking at the origin 
of the new song that we sing. The one that we must sing all day long, every day of our lives. It was not, in other words, a free song. It cost the Son of God his life to purchase that song for us. And this is what the book of Jonah ultimately points to. God in his dealings with Jonah is showing him, among many things that we've talked about over the past few weeks, this one thing, that to arise is to go. And to go is to have been arisen. They are, if we understand our our salvation properly, if we've embraced the fullness of our salvation, they are not separate. God's salvation of us and his mission are not separate because we express God's salvation in his mission. The very work of God's deliverance is the new song in our mouths for a world that desperately needs to hear it, to see it, to understand it. And so though we don't know who wrote the book of Jonah, ultimately. Scholars don't know for sure who wrote the book of Jonah. But one thing I, can, I feel pretty confident about is that the reason we have this story is because at some point, Jonah learned. He heard the new song and he recognized that he needed to humbly share his story with the world. And I think that's why we have this book. Somewhere along the line, he recognized the new song that he was given when he was first told to arise and go. In a minute, we're going to be worshiping through the, the act of communion, the Lord's Supper. Um, And as we do, what I'd ask for all of us to do, myself included, is to think about this new song. David calls it, in verse 9, the glad news of deliverance. And in my life, that's another way of saying the gospel. That's what the gospel is. It is good news. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, you and I have the greatest news in the world. There is nothing like it. Nothing like it. And I'm not talking about a painless existence in the sky. That's boring compared to what we get. I'm talking about looking into the face of the one who made me, the one for whom I'm made, and being in the arms of the one who all of our souls were designed to know and love. And that begins right now when we trust him. That begins right now. Now, do we know the extent to which God has loved us in Christ Jesus? Do we know how ridiculously awesome it is, how incredible and remarkable it is that he's rescued us? If your faith is in Christ Jesus, you know something of this. There is a song inside of you that is begging to be sung. Jonah refused to sing this song. That's what the whole book of Jonah is about. He refused to sing this song until he absolutely had to, and then he immediately regretted it, and spends, God spends an entire chapter trying to teach him the song again. We can't afford to be like Jonah. The stakes are just too high, and his story exists explicitly so that we won't be like Jonah, so that we won't make the same decisions that he made. And so as we turn from the book of Jonah into new territory next week, God willing, here's what I would ask for all of us to pray for in our response to all that we've learned in the book of Jonah. And it's this, 
that all of us every day would ask God that we would know how he saved us, that we would know the, the degree to which he saved us, the power that was exerted there, that we would have an ever-increasing understanding of the glory of God in saving us and that it would never cease to amaze us. It is amazing. And our failure to feel that is not due to its lack of amazement. It's due to us not seeing us. And that's going to take us into God's word. That's going to take us on our knees. And we need the results of that, the, the manifestation really of that needs to be us singing this song. The news, the glad news of deliverance. We need to sing this song that news needs to radiate from our lives throughout the world so that it might be said on the final day of Risen Hope, of the people here, that many saw and heard and feared. And many put their trust in the Lord and they joined us in this song. They joined us in singing this song about Christ and his precious son. If your faith is in Christ Jesus, you were made to sing. You were made to sing. That's why you're here. That's why we're here. We are made to sing of how good he's been to us with this glad news of deliverance. So let's pray that God would do this in our hearts. Heavenly Father, each week we look at the most staggering realities in your word. And... Um, we are stunned at the extent to which you went to rescue us. You sent your son to die for us on the cross. And that act of love, the greatest act of love in the universe, should be the gravity anchor of our souls in every thought, every word, every deed, every conversation. Father, let us feel the weight of what you've done. It is so easy for us to be caught up in trivialities and things that will not matter on an eternal level. But help us, Father God, to see what you've done in our own lives and to sing it to this world, that our lives might be a display of your deliverance to us, that we would not conceal it, that we would not restrain our lips, that we would not hide your faithfulness in our hearts, but that we would speak of how good our God has been to us, that that would be the main reality that governs our thinking and our words, Father God. Help us to be this kind of people, Father God. Help me to be this kind of person. There are souls around us that need to hear this song. May we sing it in the name of Jesus. Amen.